Let's go. You're listening to Making Data Simple, where we make the world of data effortless, relevant, and yes, even fun. Hey, listeners, welcome to Making Data Simple. You're back again. As always, thank you so much. I've got another great guest today. My guest is Russ Kajek. He's the CEO of Blue Iron. Let's see if I can give you an intro, <laughs> then I'm going to let you introduce yourself. I already knew that this was going to be uh, interesting because he is a recovering patent attorney, which is also interesting for me because I have a daughter in law school and she thinks she wants to become a patent attorney. So I texted her. She hadn't responded back to me yet. You think I know she has that phone right in front of her face all the time. But I, I said, hey, look, I've got the guy that you need to answer the question for right now as you're taking your classes. So we'll see if she replies during the podcast. But he's a recovering patent attorney who believes that IP can be used as a financial instrument. He's an author, author of Investing in Patents. You're going to have to explain this one to me. One of IAM's top 300 patent strategists. Blue Intellectual Iron. Asset Magazine. Yeah, that's yeah, nice. It's, it's right up there. That's yeah. great. And practicing patent attorney, you still haven't given it up, it sounds like. Yeah, it's, it's a tough habit to break. You know. <laughs> All right, look, let me pause. So I'm going to give you uh, a couple of minutes. Introduce yourself, let us know your experience, and, and we'll jump on it. I'm a mechanical engineer and got out of college, worked aerospace in St. Louis, moved out to Colorado, and started as an engineer in uh, the disk drive business, which was you know right down the street here in Boulder is where IBM created the disk drive and spun out all these little companies that were all entrepreneurial and and so on. Um, anyway, worked that business for a while, wound up at Hewlett Packard as an engineer for a few years, and went through the patent process as an engineer. I was in the big company, had an invention that I wanted to license, went to a patent attorney who was on my hockey team at the time, and I was really disappointed in that whole conversation. And I wanted to do it better. And so I wound up taking the patent bar, which you can do as an engineer, became a patent agent and worked for that attorney for about three years to learn the trade. And then I went to law school. So I went to law school in my mid thirties, which was different. I was the second oldest person in my law school class. That's good. I, yeah. I would tell that now, right? Oh, yeah. You know, it gives you a different perspective on it. Then I kind of started my practice as a, a patent agent and then as a patent attorney when I graduated law school as a solo guy. Did a bunch of patents for Microsoft. Got introduced to Bill Gates's technical advisor. Joined him to found a startup out in Seattle for a couple of years. So I was in-house, essentially. Had this notion that Patents are valuable. You know, from the beginning, I always wondered, how do I create value? How do I reverse engineer the patent system to create value? And that's kind of the holistic idea. Now I'll finance patents. When I think the patents are good, I'll take all the risk. I'll pay for all the patent stuff. You pay for the patent after it issues. As I was doing that, I stumbled into patent insurance, which very few people know about. I would buy an insurance policy. So my startup would have the money to go after 
the infringer or, you know, defense policy, meaning they get sued by a troll or a competitor or whoever. And we can also, through the insurance companies, we can do loans using patents as collateral. So the whole business is around how do I figure out if this idea has value? How do I figure out if this patent has value? And how do we take those assets and use them in a business context? So look, uh, one reason you, we were talking about, well, let me back up. This is a making data simple podcast. First of all, I think everything surrounds data one way or another. But we were asking or we were talking about, hey, uh, how does this relate? First of all, I think everything relates to this podcast. Like I told you before, I had my coach on. We were talking about leadership. But I think, and Kate's on here too. She's our producer. I think in the last, what, five, six episodes, we've had CEO of startups, right? So I got to believe every one of those CEOs are listening right now and are going through the same challenges, much of what you describe. How is your business monetized? We're taking a very long-term view on patent assets, if we're going to finance them, I'm going to put money up front, kind of like an angel investor. And we get paid after we produce. We get paid after the patents issue. And here's the killers that you could walk away from those patents at any time. And I'm holding them as collateral. So I got to worry about, do these patents have value? And how do I create value out of it? And that's really where the magic comes in and the, you know, can I underwrite that investment? I'm looking at, will this patent have value? Can I get a patent on this idea? You know, what prior art is out there and how narrow or broad am I going to get the coverage? Who are the competitors in the marketplace? Are those competitors buying and selling patents? Are we creating real economic value with a patent or are we just getting a really expensive plaque on the wall? Do you own the patent after this? I do it two different ways. One is I own it and I lease it back to them or we do a security interest on the asset, kind of whatever they're comfortable with. But it, I collateralize it. I treat it as a piece of collateral for a loan and you walk away from the loan, I'm going to live with that patent. So it sounds like it's kind of like Shark Tank, because I got to believe somebody comes to you and says, hey, is Shark Tank without, oh, on Shark Tank, everyone is asked, oh, do you have a patent? The guy says, oh, yes, I have a patent. And then they quit. They quit with the analysis there. I've actually interviewed some people from Shark Tank, and the patents were absolutely dreadful. One person <laughs> had listed his uncle as the inventor on the patent because his uncle paid for it. His uncle won his name on it. Well, that makes a patent completely invalid, right? But got on Shark Tank and all the sharks said, oh, do you have a patent? Yes. Oh, great. You know, here's one of the problems. I was doing due diligence for an angel group this week, and we looked at a company who had a cybersecurity product. And in cybersecurity, you, you're trying to outsmart the bad guys. So you're doing stuff behind the scenes to figure out, are they in my system and how do I minimize the loss and detect all that stuff? Well, that stuff's like really, really secret. The last thing you want to do is tell all the bad guys, this is how I'm looking for you. So you can figure out a way to get around me. But that happens all the time, by the way. It, but I, I know, but you know, what happens all the time is 
here's a startup entrepreneur who's in front of an angel investors and some angel investor said, do you have a patent on that? And he's like, well, no, I'm doing everything a trade secret because it's very secretive and I don't want to, you know, expose it and all that. But the investor was really, you know, well, I think you should get a patent. And it's like, okay, I'll do one. So in due diligence, I'm, I'm looking at this. I'm, I can't believe the fact that he is going to give away all the value of the company by getting a patent. Thankfully, it wasn't published, so no damage was done. But the inventor could have lost all the value of his company by getting a patent because some investor saw Shark Tank and said, oh, do you have a patent? Do you then, I presume that, you know, like, that's an interesting perspective because you're the patent attorney. I would imagine you'd be, hey, patent, patent, patent. But actually, you're providing advice, or I presume that you could be solicited for your uh, expertise to say, hey, when or when not to get a patent. Well, that's the difference between financing a patent and being a patent attorney. If you're hiring a patent attorney, you're asking somebody to do a job. You know, you're asking somebody to paint your house or do whatever. And you're asking the barber if you need a haircut, right? They're going to get you a patent. If you walk in and say, oh, give me a patent, they're going to give you one. And they're meeting their ethical obligation. If I finance the patent, I'm representing the end product, you know, the holding company, if you will, for the patent. And so I'm looking out for what's the most important thing for that patent, not part of the attorney-client relationship. I'm your agent. You tell me to do something. I have to do it, no matter if I like it or not. And so, you know, by doing this finance bit, I can act in a different way and provide a different skill set, a different level of expertise to startup companies. Does that make sense? No, it makes perfect sense. I'm just still stuck on, I think I walked into it when I said Shark Tank. The, the listeners couldn't see you. You wince. I was like, what did I say? <laughs> Obviously, that has an emotional connection with you. Well, I could have taken a picture. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Shark Tank's done so much for introducing, you know, the, uh, the entrepreneurial journey to the world. And they've, you know, unfortunately, you know, they make it very entertaining and tune out a lot of kind of the reality. The truth is there's a huge group, a nationwide group called the Angel Capital Association. And they're kind of the overarching group for a bunch of local angel investor groups. And these local groups got together to help entrepreneurs and to give them the tool sets, to mentor them, to coach them, to not to gouge them and to really put the screws to them to get, you know, way too much equity or, or anything like that. They're actually there to help them. And there's a huge availability of expertise, a lot of gray hair that entrepreneurs can take <laughs> advantage of that's widely available across the country. And, and if you're thinking about it, either wanting to give back as a mentor or invest as an angel or as an entrepreneur looking for resources, any of those angel groups are super helpful. They're a great resource. But so going back to your company, Blue Iron, mm -hmm. you're like a mix between, you know, we got your patent attorney covered. We can provide advice and, and, and direction. 
you're almost but a mix between that and a uh, almost a venture capitalist around opportunities. Mm -hmm. Say somebody comes to you with a patent that can't progress it or doesn't maybe can't envision the return on investment that you can see or, or otherwise, and you can help them get from point A to point B. You know, usually people come and they've been burned at some point in the patent system. They either got a patent they thought was valuable, turned out it wasn't, or they've, you know, run a little too close to the, the flame or whatever. Once somebody has some basic experience of the pluses and minuses of the patent system, I have a whole different conversation with them as opposed to kind of the first time, hey, I don't quite know what I'm doing here. And, you know, I'm more trying to talk to that person who's got experience, you know, a company that's big enough that has an in-house patent counsel, for example, who understands the risks, somebody who's going to live with the results of the patent in the future. I do talk to independent inventors, but they really have to have a business plan or some outside financing before, you know, they get on my radar screen. This begs the question, out of everybody that solicits your feedback or just starts an engagement with you, how many turn into a patent that bears fruit? It's certainly not 100%. I take a lot of phone calls and, you know, and spend a half an hour with people and talk through their stuff. I'll tell you... Every time, you know, somebody schedules something on Calendly and I see kind of their description and, and I kind of wince, I'm like, oh, oh, this one's going to hurt. It turns out to be like magical. There's something behind the scenes that I think, oh, wow, this is a real gem. And then there's others that I look at and I think, wow, this one's going to be killer. Man, they got their act together. Uh, oh, yeah, this is going to be awesome. And then you talk to them and, you know, there's some disaster around the corner that you, know, you didn't see. And so I struggle with my ability to predict, okay? It's, I've been burned enough times to just be open to talking to people, see if the metrics line up and see if it's a good deal and then get involved if I can. There, there's so many elements here. I, I presume that that would be the magic in that, you know, how many times you, know, you learn from getting burned. Pretty soon you figure out what... What fire to stay away from? The reason I ask the question is because I, I, you know, I get different statistics all the time, but something like ninety percent of startups fail. That leaves ten percent. I don't know what ratio you're at, but and I don't know what data. You know, bringing it back to data, what data do you use outside of your intuition to say, hey, this is going to be the next big thing? There's a couple of things. You know, I use a lot of tools for patent searching, for patent analysis, and that kind of stuff. There's a few companies that have AI-based tools for patent searching and so on. The patent database is structured. It has its own classification system, you know, which was designed for searching. You can track which patents reference each other. And so there's some real structure to it that allow you to do some interesting patent searches. That's kind of one level of it. The other is, what's the competitive landscape? Who are the customers? Who's you know, what's the possibility for this company to grow and who are the investors and so on? A lot of the business part of it, of the analysis, is done by outside investors. If I'm providing financing for the patents and an angel group is providing operating capital for them, if the angel group likes them and went through their due diligence checklist, that covers kind of the business part. 
I handle the, the patent part, we somewhat mitigated that risk. Do you have a, a specialization like a Warren Buffett? You know, he's always got a specialization. He won't even touch tech most of the time, although he's breaking some of his own rules. What about yeah. you? Yeah, my only specialization is I don't do goopy. What does goopy mean? I do mechanical, electrical software. I've probably done hundreds of software applications. I like stuff that's not goopy. You know, if it's goopy, it's it's icky. I just I can't get my head around it. So is that to say is like Buffett always says, I like to jump over five inch bars. If it's a six foot bar, I'm out. So yeah, he, it's, he makes a quick assessment. He went if it's a five inch bar, good. Is that is that goopy? You know, it depends what the bar is. If it's some kind of biotech slimy nonsense, that's you know, I won't do that one. If it's a five inch bar in the mechanical field, I'm all good. Or software or something like that. I'm all, I like those. How much time do you spend in research? What percentage of your day is researching and stuff? Percentage of my day? I don't know. Uh, you know, it seems I'm always on the patent search engines and stuff, either preparing to meet for somebody or researching a, an investment we're going to make or getting ready, researching a patent that I'm going to write. Contrary to most patent attorneys, I will spend five hours doing research for every one hour that I'm writing the patent application. Most patent attorneys just write the patent application. They'll sit down at the end and they'll say, okay, tell me what the invention is. Let's go through it. Does it have this? Does it have that? I kind of walk through it. I write it down. But for me, because I'm investing in it, I spend five times that writing claims, researching the claims, figuring out, you know, what's the scope of this? Can I redesign around it? Is it detectable? Trying to beat on it to see if it's going to be a good investment. Because the last thing I want to do is have a patent that that's worthless in the end. Makes sense. Makes sense. Let me, let me back up for a second. And I'll go forward again. Uh, yeah. My daughter responded to me. <laughs> this is the daughter that, uh, like I say, she's going to law school. She hadn't figured out what discipline she wants to be in, but she's thinking intellectual property. She only came back with two questions. One you may have already addressed. She asked, hey, why patent law in particular? What interest got you or pushed you in that direction? And I think the follow-up question that I would have, do you have to be an engineer in your mind? Yes, you do. You have to have an engineering or science degree to sit for the patent bar. Okay, so that excludes a lot of people. So the universe of people can practice patent law is pretty small. The other thing about patent law and my sales pitch for patent law is it is the only form of law where the attorney adds value. <laughs> Every other time that you hire an attorney, you're hiring an insurance policy. You're I, I saying, did. oh, I don't want to read this contract. So here, you read this contract for me and tell me what's what's wrong with it. Or I don't want to stand up in court and argue. And so here, you go do that for me. But in patent law, you get to take this amorphous idea and put it into some kind of form. And what's that patent worth, right? If I did a good job, that patent's worth, what, a million bucks, right? I could create a million dollars of value in two days of work writing a patent on Monday and Tuesday, take Wednesday off, do it again on Thursday and Friday. In one week of work, I can reliably create a million, two million dollars worth of value to my clients. What other profession allows you to create that much value repeatedly? Patent law is the only thing. 
Are you sitting on your yacht right now? <laughs> I wish I was. <laughs> <laughs> and Kate, don't you have a relative like your dad? Isn't he attorney? Yeah, I have attorneys in my criminal uh, attorneys in my family tree. So, but I take your point and they have a good sense of humor about it as well. That's hilarious. That's great. So the second question my daughter asked, she said, what's the most interesting patent or case that you've had, if you're allowed to discuss it? Oh, that was my question too. Tell uh, us the story. I'm going to give you the best answer. And that the most interesting one is the next one. <laughs> Okay, the, the next phone call is going to be far more interesting than all the other ones I've had in the said past. Said like a true attorney. Yeah. Said like a true attorney. Well yeah. done. Well done. I knew this was going to be good, Kate. I knew from the start that it was going to be good. You can't sleaze out of that, though. Come on, you got to give me one case in well, the past. I get your case for the future, but one case in the past that you just, you're pretty proud of, you say on that one. My current favorite is... An entrepreneur, and he's in Butte, Montana, who has a company called Pest Notify. And he's a, a, a property owner. He was managing a dozen or so apartments or houses or whatever, maybe a couple dozen. He had some of his own, and he was also managing for other people. And one of the problems he kept running into was bed bugs and, and pests. And Tenants would move in and six months later, they call and say, hey, you know, we've got bed bugs and it's all your fault, property manager, landlord. And he's like, well, six months, pretty sure you didn't have bed bugs before. And all of a sudden they show up. I'm sure that it was the tenant. And so the landlord and the tenant had this conflict. And so he created a little sticky trap for bugs and had a barcode on it. And he would hand these out to all his tenants and they were required to take a picture of it every week, every month or whatever, and just take a picture of it and text it to him. And so he had a record of what bugs were in the apartment. Just from that photograph, the image, because it was a known dimension, he could scale it and then measure the size of the bug. He can look at it and send it to a bug guy to, to be identified or whatever. And so this product that came from a, a small need, he himself, he recognized, he built the first traps and got them out there and started using them, built a little web app to track, you know, every month somebody would send in a picture. And so he'd have a history. If the traps got dirty, he'd just mail them a new one. They put it out. And as a brilliant business. And he's kind of at the point where he's starting to think about scaling this up and how do I go to market and make it all happen. And somebody who has that kind of initiative, that kind of inventiveness and that kind of market savvy to understand all that, he's going to go far. And I'm just happy to be along for the ride as he's, he's going down that journey. Fantastic. How did he find you? I was a mentor at an early stage Montana kind of startup accelerator help thing a few months ago and wound up chatting with them and turned out to be a pretty good deal. How many clients do you work with any given time? Because they take so much work, <laughs> the, the underwriting part, uh, the coming up to speed and so on. I've done 
a couple dozen deals. I don't know if I intentionally doing this slowly and, and deliberately or if I should scale it harder, but generally I'm pretty selective about who I'm going to work with and why. I was going to say, why wouldn't you scale? Why wouldn't you have an army working for you, helping you write some of this stuff? You know, writing the patents is kind of the easy part. Finding and vetting the companies is the hard part. The marketing, the awareness, everybody's got an idea, thinks it's worth a gazillion dollars and you have to kind of sift through that and wait till you find the right companies at the right stage with the right people who that you like, that you gel with. Maybe I should scale it harder, but I've been more deliberate lately than I should. Why the name Blue Iron? I wanted a name with a color in it. I have gray hair just for the listeners. <laughs> and my grandfather had one of these gigantic unabridged dictionaries, like eight inches thick. I got the dictionary and I put it out on my dining room table and I just, and I'd flip through it looking for interesting words that might be good company names. And I was flipping through the blues, you know, blue this, blue that, and blue iron. Like, I don't recall what the definition is, but the name sounded strong. It sounded colorful. And I thought, ah. How long has this company been in existence? Oh, I don't know. Probably six, eight years. You know, when you're telling me every, you know, about all these ideas you're getting, everybody's got the million dollar idea. Charles Duell famously said in 1899 that everything that can be invented has already been invented. Apparently he was wrong. Well, you know, when they first started the patent office in the, in the U.S., they thought that there was some limit, like a thousand inventions. That's theoretical limit is like a thousand. You know, we're at patent number 11 million right now. All these predictions don't look so good after, you know, in hindsight, do they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got you. Hey, one of the good questions that I saw here that uh, I'd like to hear the answer to is the common myths about patents and intellectual property. Oh, there's a ton of them. The biggest myth, I think that the patent bar does a disservice to the startup community is they like to push this idea of provisional patent applications. And even the patent office has jumped into this, which horrifies me. But a provisional patent application is something that I can I can file a provisional application and it delays getting examination for a year. The whole point of it is to delay getting examination. So I file something today, I wait another year, and then I file the non-provisional, the real one. And came into existence in the 90s because it used to be that foreign applicants you know, somebody in Europe, for example, could file in their country, they could wait a year, and then they'd file in the US. And they would have an advantage that their patent would expire a year later than the US inventor who filed their patent dutifully, you know, on the first day, last 17 years. And then, but the European guys were getting patents that last to 18 years, essentially. And so they put this thing in place, and now everybody's promoting it as the best thing for startup companies. And it's the absolute worst thing for startup companies. The faster you get a patent, the better off the startup company is. If I'm pitching to investors and my patent's issued, 
I got something of substance. If I'm pitching to the to investors and well, I just have this provisional patent that might get examined and you know, I might get a patent in the future. Well, what is that worth? I can't really put much value on it. The sooner I get a patent, the sooner I can license, the sooner I can enforce it, the sooner I can use it as collateral for an a loan, the sooner I can insure it so that I can indemnify my clients and uh, the sooner I can use that insurance to enforce it. You know, everything's better the sooner I get a patent. And patent attorneys sell this to entrepreneurs because they're terrified of telling them how much it costs up front. And so, oh, well, you know, we, we'll just delay that a year. And the clients buy into it. And sadly, they waste a year of value, a year of the most important time that they have as a company to grow and form and create value. Could you repeat those timelines again? I just want to make sure I got them right. If I file a provisional application, I have one year to file a non-provisional application. If I file a provisional I get to delay filing the non-provisional for a year. That's the important timeline. And what that means is I delay getting in the queue at the patent office. I delay my examination. I delay when the patent issues. So I'm delaying getting the patent by doing a provisional. If I file a non-provisional, I get the patent sooner. I'm in the queue to get examined, the, the timeline shifts up a year. But how would they sell the provisional? Client walks in the door, they say, hey, I want a patent. And patent attorneys, like they always say, I want a patent, I have no money. You have no money? Well, okay, let's do this thin provisional and help you get a date in the sand. It's an artificial deadline, that one-year deadline. The patent attorney's going to say, hey, well, this is the full amount you got to pay up. The patent bar has used it as kind of a sales tool for for unsuspecting first-time inventors. Um, yeah, but if I'm a first-time inventor, wouldn't I? I mean, I can see what they're thinking. They're thinking, oh, I don't, I don't have it all put together right now. I need to just get something in the system so that uh, I don't lose it. I'm sure that's how they're being sold, and they think, well, I'll get yeah. something. Something's better than nothing. There's two points to that. One is... I can always add more material to a patent application. It's called a continuation in part application. And so I can file one today, maybe three years from now, we say, oh, we got this big discovery. Well, I'm just going to add more to that. It's called continuation in part. So I can always add more material. I could do it at three months, filed one today. And then three months later, oh, we get some new test data that we want to put in. We can do that. So th this notion of I want to add something to it later, which is usually the, oh, you can add something to it later a year from now. That notion is bogus. The other option, uh, you know, hey, I want to get something now. Look, you're creating an asset that needs to be worth million dollars, 50 million, who knows? This is a very valuable asset if it's good or if it's done well. It's very, very valuable. Why are you trying to cut corners on this? Do it right. Do it well. If you're not ready to file a patent application, you're not ready. You know, that's okay. My advice to early entrepreneurs 
especially when they just have an idea. There's something that came from Tim Ferriss's four-hour work week. When he came up with a product idea, he did not get a patent. He did not build the product. He did not even build the prototype. What he built was a landing page. He built the advertisement. He built the marketing mechanism for the product, run Facebook ads, Google ads, whatever, get people on the landing page and then collect their email. And what he built was a launch list of people who wanted it. And if he got a good response, okay, that validates the idea. Now it's worth building a prototype. Now it's worth building, you know, doing the patent. The other thing about patents is first patent is always the worst one. It has the least amount of, hey, wait for it, data. We don't know what works or what doesn't. We don't know, you know, we haven't built the prototypes. We haven't worked through the engineering problems. We haven't worked through the marketing part of it. We don't know what the customer really wants. We don't know if they're going to use it upside down or this way or that way. We just don't know. The next patent will always be better informed than the one we did before. So why put all the effort in that first one? It's, and if you're inventive, you're going to have more ideas. So, you know, you're not going to retire on one patent. Don't treat it like that. It's just a tool. Makes sense. Is what you mentioned earlier in terms of taking a provision of one year, the number one mistake people make? when getting? Oh, I think it, in startup land, absolutely. But the other thing, you know, we mentioned this before when we talked about that cybersecurity company, a lot of times patents hurt people. A patent discloses a lot. Every word in the patent hurts you. And you need to make the business decision to say, does this make sense or not? And unless it makes sense, you shouldn't do it. As an engineer, as an inventor, you know, getting a patent is a big accomplishment. Don't let that overshadow, you know, whether or not this is a good business decision. So I guess you just answered also, is there such a thing as a bad patent? Only 2% of all the patents out there make money. And about 95% of all the patents out there are, are worthless in some form. There's just a small sliver, the lottery tickets, the small sliver, and they're worth real money, you know, in, in the hundreds of millions, billions of dollars, if they're the right one at the right time, the right place. You mentioned, specifically pointed out insurance policies for intellectual property. Can you say mm -hmm. a little bit more on that and what that means? So insurance for intellectual property has been around for 20, 30 years, but it's not widely talked about. Right now, patent owners, and the patent owners would be huge corporations to startup companies don't even know this exists. And so if I know that somebody is infringing my patent, what do I do if I'm a startup company? Well, it's entry fee for patent lawsuit is $500,000 million dollars. If I assert the patent against you, you're going to claim it's invalid. So we're going to have to go through the inter-parties review at the patent office. That's five to 700K right there. It's big money. And so very few people have the financial bandwidth to do that. And so on the small end of the scale, there's a whole bunch of infringement that just happens and 
big companies, especially medical device, telecom, they just, oh yeah, I know about your patent, but you know, I'm just going to wait until you sue me for us to have a dialogue. <laughs> you know, they won't do license. And this is called an efficient infringement in the trade. Small startup companies are getting their IP stomped on by big companies, unless it's absolutely enormous. If it's, you know, huge amount of infringement, I'm talking at minimum of damages in the 50 to $100 million range. Then I can go out and get contingency fee firms. I can get litigation finance firms. I can get all kinds of people who would fund that lawsuit. But there's this huge valley of death up to that spot. Nobody can get protection in between. And the other thing is patent attorneys, we would love to have clarity in what the law really says. And so the only way we get that is a lawsuit percolates through the the system and the Supreme Court clarifies, what does this one word mean? And then it percolates all the way down. And there's not enough of those lawsuits going through. So we work in this area of ambiguity. Think about a world where everybody's insured. Okay. It's just like, you know, the disaster of our healthcare system that's trillions of dollars, right? I'm insured. So I'm going to my doctor for every sniffle and cold and whatever. There's a lot of money pumped into the system. There's a lot of devices. There's a lot of technology put in the system because the system doesn't necessarily have that cost problem. Uh, if we were paying out of our pocket for medical services, it'd be a much different landscape. And patent law is the same way, but we're all paying out of pocket in the patent landscape. And wouldn't it be cool if we all were insured? And of course, now a lot of this risk and a lot of the technology, and a lot of the decision making would be pushed to the insurance company, similar to in medical, but kind of the future that I'm envisioning if a lot of people had insurance cover. So, Kate, this has been fascinating. But what do you think about a guy that says only patent attorneys provide value and has a gumball <laughs> machine in back of him filled with nuts? <laughs> I think the world is big enough to tolerate all kinds in all ways. And it it is certainly not detracted from the engaging conversation we've had here today. Selfishly, I've had so much fun learning and listening about this. And the last thoughts I've had as we were talking is just how interesting as you go through your evaluation process, right? How interesting is it to just see all of the ideas that are being generated, the things I would not have even thought were a problem, right? It's just such an interesting idea to be able to see all the ideas that humans are thinking of. You know, the world is big enough for all, Al. It is. (laughs) The one other pitch I'd make to your daughter about going into patent law. When I was an engineer, I had all, you know, I got to invent stuff and create something. And then, then I had to like design it and build it and debug it and test it and certify it and ship it and support it. And that was painful. But the fun of it kind of carried me through all the drudgery of the rest of the engineering process. As a patent attorney, I get to touch that idea, mess with it a little bit, suggest some changes, play with it a little bit, but I'm done in two weeks and I'm moving on to the next one. A lot of work out there for patent attorneys is pretty good rackets, better than the racket I had as an engineer. So (laughs) question. 
So the people listening, I'm sure choosing a patent attorney is always difficult. And I know you mentioned a couple of conflicts of interest in patent attorneys and clients. What is your suggestion on how to choose a, a patent attorney? And secondly, uh, you know, where can they reach you? You know, here's what I would do. Don't go on somebody reckon, oh, this guy's a good patent attorney. The only reason why he's a good patent attorney is sends the clients chocolates at Christmas. Okay. That's not how you evaluate patent attorneys. What I would do is get two attorneys, two patent attorneys and ask them, give me a patent that you just wrote and ask the other one, give me a patent that you wrote. And then take the patent from one attorney and walk over to the first one and say, okay, tell me what's good about it. Tell me what's wrong about it. Tell me how this, what you would do to invalidate it. How would you think about pricing it for a license? Tell me about how this patent from the other attorney could be used in business. And what you want to do is get that person sitting in front of you to talk in a business language and business thought process to figure out, is the other guy's work product any good? And then repeat the process with the first one. And you're going to evaluate both attorneys at the same time. You're going to see the person in front of you is going to have to articulate the business reasons for getting the patent and so on. And you're going to evaluate the other attorney as what's, is their work product good or bad from a legal and business standpoint. And that's my recommendation for how to find good professionals. And you could apply that if you're hiring two developers and you got samples of their code and I can't read the code, but I can have one developer read the other guy's code and tell me if it's good or bad, right? And so I'd use that process. I mean, the first thing I thought of is um, a financial analyst or anybody that's going to help you with financials, an advisor. It's a great method to do just the same, right? Yeah, make make each one of them work on the other guy's product and tell me what's good. And if they, well, I don't know if this is any good. Well, it tells you a lot right there. Where can the listeners reach you? I'm at blueironip.com. My other website is ip.insure, ip.insure. You can find me on LinkedIn. There's not very many of us Krajaks on LinkedIn. So happy to meet with anybody and chat with them. Also, if somebody drops me an email with their mailing address, I'm happy to mail out a copy of my book to them too. No charge. So happy to do that. How do they reach you there? Is it LinkedIn the, the best? LinkedIn, gotta... rust.crajack at, at blueironip.com. Okay. You can find it, my emails all over the website. So, um, all right. Terrific. Hey, I want one of those. I, you know, look, I'll read it. That'd checks in the mail. All right. <laughs> you know, hey, uh, what do you do for fun, man? Well, I was going to say I play hockey, but I'm, I'm getting less and less interested in hockey because you get hurt more. And you don't recover as much. Um, but I play a lot of golf and run around up here in the mountains of Colorado. Colorado. Uh, that now I know why you're on because Kate, our producer, is a, a big fan of Colorado. She's in Colorado Springs. Oh, nice. So, yes. Small world. So, hey, thank you for being on. This has been fabulous. I've really learned a ton. I knew it was going to be when we started. So thank you. And, and look, there's some guests that are just easy to talk to. There's some that you got to poke a little bit. 
Look, thank you for making this easy. It was great. <laughs> Thanks. Well, I'm glad. I hope I didn't poke you a little too no, hard. No, 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 no. All good, man. All good. That's what I want. That's the fun of it. That's the fun. As long as it we is. can poke each other back, that's great, right? Oh, yeah. Bring it on. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you again. And listeners, thank you for listening. Reach out to us at almarktalksdata at gmail.com. Love to hear from you. Love to hear uh, potential guests as well. So thank you. And I'll see you on the podcast. Thanks for listening to the Making Data Simple podcast, where we make data fun. Be sure to visit ibmbigdatahub.com forward slash podcasts to access the show notes and uncover even more great episodes. Remember, the views expressed here are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily represent the views of IBM. Until next time, let's go over and